Hello, and welcome to the Paperclip podcast. I'm Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation. And in this podcast, we are going to take a look together at the stories that matter to India and the world. Hello, and welcome back to the Paperclip podcast with me, Mehir Sharma. In this podcast, as always, we're going to take a look behind the headlines at the real stories that shape our world, with analysis informed by the cutting-edge in research and commentary from my ORF colleagues and from around the world. Today, we're going to talk about Australia. And that's because, in, in some sense, Australia's predicament over the past few months exemplifies the hard choices that many countries in the Indo-Pacific and beyond are going to be facing in the years to come. The most recent provocation has been a Twitter post, something as mild as a Twitter post, except this is from the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman, Li Jian Zhao. Now, Mr. Zhao is an interesting individual who I think deserves a, an episode of this podcast all to himself at some point. But what matters for this story is to know that he is one of China's new wolf warrior diplomats. They're called wolf warriors after a recent hyper-nationalistic movie franchise on the mainland. But they're essentially officials of the foreign office in Beijing who behave more like internet trolls than they do career diplomats. He honed this craft as a junior official in the PRC's embassy to Islamabad and was promoted subsequently for his efforts. And now he has helped escalate an already tense situation between Australia and China by posting on Twitter a morphed photo of an Australian soldier with the backdrop being that country's flag and the soldier is grinning evilly while holding a knife to the throat of an Afghan child. Now, there's some context here. Um, this is a reference to a recent report that was issued by a committee led by an Australian judge that had been tasked to examine Australian soldiers' actions in the war in Afghanistan. That report, after four years of investigation, had identified several acts of what could only be classed as outright murder by Australian special forces during their involvement in the Afghan war between 2005 and 2016. Now, this was an independent report from the Inspector General of the Australian military, and it was commissioned by the Chief of the Australian Army. It followed multiple news reports in the Australian media of misconduct by that country's soldiers. In other words, it is a classic example of how an open society begins to come to account, to come to terms, with misconduct by those who wear its uniform. But for Mr. Zhao, this report was merely another tool in a propaganda battle, and one that was being fought with the tactics that one expects more from anonymous trolls on Twitter than with the chief foreign office spokesman of the world's second most powerful country. In response to Mr. Zhao's post on Twitter, the Australian Prime Minister himself issued a fairly anodyne statement on the Chinese social media website WeChat. Remember, on the mainland, you can't access Twitter without a VPN. And in, a, in that statement, he said merely that Australia wants to deal with issues in a transparent and honest way, which is how a free, democratic and enlightened nation should behave. And then he went on to praise Australian multiculturalism and the contribution to the country of Chinese Australians, 
etc., etc. It was a pretty sort of, you know, open and friendly kind of statement. Absurdly, however, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has had his post deleted by WeChat for violating the Chinese corporation's rules against, and I quote now, distorting historical events and confusing the public. Distorting historical events and confusing the public. I have to admit this is almost enviable levels of hypocrisy. It's worth noting that Zhao Lijian's tweet, the one with the morphed photo, has not been deleted by Twitter, nor does it rate even a special note from Twitter saying it is misleading. In fact, it remains pinned on top of his official account as Beijing's spokesman to the world, where it has been liked almost 70,000 times. So how did these two countries get here? What does the PRC get from provoking Australia in this manner? Well, we know, thanks to Beijing's embassy in Canberra, what the PRC's leaders are actually upset about. A few weeks ago, the embassy made a helpful list of everything it thought Australia had done wrong and helpfully handed it over to a large number of Aussie news outlets. And it makes for fascinating reading. There are 14 points on this list and they range from the serious, for example, decisions by the Australian government and regulators that stopped certain foreign investments from the PRC coming into Australia on the grounds of national security, to the mildly ridiculous, namely that Australian think tanks are, quote, spreading untrue reports, peddling lies around Xinjiang and so-called China infiltration, and that Australia is calling for an international independent inquiry into the COVID-19 virus. Now, strange though this list might be, it is reflective of Beijing's new attitude to the world in general and to its trading partners in particular. This is the next step in China's rise. It intends to ensure that those countries over which it has some influence, over which it has power, kowtow to it, you know, recognize its sort of, you know, imperial superiority. In particular, those that have liberal institutions, those countries, those trading partners of China that have liberal institutions of various sorts, whether they're independent regulators, courts, think tanks, or a media, these countries must ensure that those institutions are no longer so independent that they take the sort of actions that the leaders in Beijing think might harm the PRC's interests. So in other words, a nation's regulators can no longer act to defend national interests, the media cannot write what it wants about foreign policy, and think tanks can't conduct research and advocacy if all that leads to conclusions that Beijing does not like. Now, the question is, why would the PRC think that this kind of petty grandstanding, this sort of excessive demand, uh, would matter to another sovereign country? And the answer is trade. The fact is that a third of Australia's exports of goods and services go to China. Since 2008 in particular, when Beijing launched its giant infrastructure stimulus in response to the global financial crisis, it has had an apparently inexhaustible appetite for Australian resources. As a result, Australia never suffered a recession after the global financial crisis and in fact rode the Chinese economy's coattails into unprecedented years of economic growth, until that is, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. For the PRC, the calculation is simple. 
As far as they're concerned, Canberra's politicians must realize that their country's recent prosperity is dependent upon trade with China. And given that that is the case, those politicians had better shut up and do what Beijing says. I think one problem for Beijing is that it may have overplayed its hand a little too early on in this dispute. One of the 14 points that were listed by the PRC as problems with Australian policy was its foreign interference legislation from a few years ago. And another was politicization and stigmatization of the normal exchanges and cooperation between China and Australia. Again, those are direct quotes from this, the note that the Chinese embassy in Australia handed out. Now, what do they refer to? They refer to various measures that began to be put in place in Australia a few years ago, essentially to prevent the capture of politicians and institutions by well-funded PRC agents. Now, that action, led off by the legislation the Chinese note mentioned, didn't appear in a vacuum, right? It was a response. The fact is that there was more than enough provocation for such a response, including a scandal involving a senior Aussie politician who had been accepting illicit donations from Beijing-linked sources, a politician who was a leading pro-Beijing voice in the Australian Senate. I think the fact that outside observers must recognize is that had Beijing been more open in how it approaches and how it approached Australian institutions in the first place, it would not have caused this sort of backlash. And had it been more honest in its dealings with moderate voices in Australia, those voices would not be as discredited as they are today. There, in fact, would be more voices within the Australian establishment calling for compromise with Beijing at any cost. This is just another way in which the authoritarians in Beijing fail to understand how democracies work. The other fact is that Australians themselves have a hard choice to make. Maintaining their sovereignty as they see it and trying to crack down on foreign manipulation at the same time will come with what Australian treasurer Josh Friedenberg recently called huge economic costs. And this is a warning for the rest of the world, including to India, on the pressures that may come with allowing your own prosperity to depend upon the Chinese economy. It's fundamentally different from depending upon another country, on Europe, say, or on the United States. Liberal democracies understand broadly how each other work. They know what the lines are that they should not cross, even if they do cross them sometimes. They have ways in which to make their interests known within each other's establishments that stop well short of manipulation or or influence peddling, basically. In the next episode of Paperclip, we will explore this Australian dilemma, an apparent choice between trade and sovereignty, a little more closely. And we will figure out what its implications are, not just for the geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific, but for the internal dynamics of countries across the region, and for how we deal with multilateral organizations, all of which must respond to a new, aggressive and prosperous PRC. This has been Paperclip, and I'm Mihir Sharma. Thanks for listening.